Lord, what a, what a privilege it is to be able to preach on this text. What a great, great text of Scripture, Lord. I'm, I'm sure in many lifetimes we cannot explore the depths of this gospel that is contained in a nutshell here. And Lord, would you just enable me to be able to, to preach this that will engender faith and enable your saints to prize faith and to see it for what it is and to venture out in faith even more than they have. So Lord, come today and help, help me, Lord, just to be able to deliver this message. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 3, let's read or quote, whatever your preference is, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God, there's the author of salvation. For God so loved, there's the motive of salvation. For God so loved the world, there are the objects of salvation, that he gave his only begotten Son, there is the gift of salvation, that whoever believes in him, there's the condition of salvation, shall not perish but have eternal life, and there are the glorious results of salvation. Or if you want to change that around a little bit, the way we've done it here is we've got the design God's love. The donation, God's son. The duty, our faith. The danger, God's wrath. And the destiny, God's glory. And today we're going to be looking at the duty. This is the only one of the five messages that's going to focus exclusively on you, what your responsibility is. And as we see here, the responsibility is to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, the doctrine that I'm going to pull out of this text is simply this. Faith in Jesus Christ is the human condition of salvation. Very simple, very straightforward, but that's what this text teaches, does it not? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The text doesn't say for God so loved the world that no one will perish but all will have eternal life. There's a certain group of people that will not perish. There's a certain group of people that will inherit eternal life. And the condition to receive those blessings is to believe in Jesus. And so this morning what I want to do is give you seven different qualities of true faith in Christ. I know that's a mistake usually. They say in seminary, never give people more than four points at a time. This is going to be seven. So jot them down if you need to. So number one, faith in Jesus Christ is the duty of every man. It's the duty, the responsibility, the requirement of every person. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, the Bible says, This is His commandment, that you believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about faith being commanded by God? It's a commandment. It's a commandment to every person. That's why if we do not believe on Christ, we are blameworthy and we're culpable in the eyes of God. Over in John 3, 18, just two verses later, let's take a look at that. 
It says, he who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe has been condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you see here the, the, the reason that God will bring condemnation upon people? It says specifically there, it's because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. They're condemned already. The person who does not believe receives God's condemnation. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, well, what's the big deal about unbelief? Why is it such a bad thing that people would not believe? Well, it seems to be a very heinous crime because Jesus said in John 16 that when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And he says he's going to convict the world of sin because they do not believe on me. The sin of unbelief is the greatest of all sins because it sets aside and neglects and rejects the, the very gift that God has given by sending His Son, Jesus Christ. Not only that, but it also calls God a liar. I want to read a scripture from 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. So God has given his word to this world. He's given his testimony. The testimony is that life is in Jesus Christ and he's offered to you, those of you who come and receive him will receive everlasting life. But the person says, I'm, I'm not going to believe in Jesus, that bunch of nonsense, that hocus pocus. I, I, I'm a person that believes in facts. I believe in science. I, I don't want to believe in any of this stuff that you can't see. Well, what you're doing there is you're making God, your creator, a liar by disbelieving the very testimony that he's given this world. So the first thing we learn about faith is that it's the duty of every person. But the second thing we learn about faith is that not only is it the duty of every person, but it is impossible for a natural man. Now, do you understand what I mean when I talk about a natural man? This is a man without the Holy Spirit. The man who's never been born again. Okay, a lost person. Not only... Is faith the duty of every man, but it's impossible for an unregenerate, a lost person to exercise faith. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time here because this might be a new idea for some of you. But why do I say that? Why do I say faith is impossible for the unregenerate person? Well, Romans 8.8 8 says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hebrews 11.6 says... Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So put those ideas together. Those who are on the flesh, that's the unregenerate person, the lost person, he cannot please God. And then Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. The unregenerate person can't please God because he can't have faith, which is that which pleases God. And not only that, what we have Jesus' own words when he was talking to his disciples after the rich young ruler had left, Jesus said, little children, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And you remember what they said? They were astonished. And they said, Lord, well then who can be saved? And Jesus responds and he says, with man it is what? Impossible. It's impossible. But not with God. With God all things are possible. But with man, it's impossible. Salvation with man is not just difficult or hard. It's impossible. It cannot happen for a lost person unless something else takes place, which we'll talk about next. But it is impossible for the unregenerate man to exercise saving faith in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. No man can come to Christ. Now, what does it mean to come to Jesus? Jesus isn't saying, no man can walk up to me. He's not talking about physically approaching him. We know from verse 35, Jesus says, he who believes in me will not hunger, and he who come, I'm sorry, he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So that verse is a parallelism. There's two thoughts that are parallel. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Coming to me and believing in me are the same thing. They're parallel ideas saying the same thing. So when Jesus says, no man can come to me, what he's saying is, no man can believe in me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. And take a look at verse 40. This is John 6, verse 40. Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. Now there's another parallelism there. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in the Son. Beholding is parallel to believing. You have to be able to behold in order to believe. Okay, look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has heard believes in me, is what Jesus is saying. You have to be able to behold the Son, and you have to be able to hear the Father in order to believe. Well, do you see a problem there? Lost people don't behold the Son, and lost people don't hear the Father because they're spiritually blind and they're spiritually deaf. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They're spiritually blind. Over in John 8 verse 43 Jesus says, Why don't you understand? It is because you cannot hear my word. They couldn't. They couldn't hear it. Now, they could hear the sounds coming from his lips, but they couldn't hear it with a spiritual heart to receive it. And they couldn't see Christ with spiritual eyes to behold him. It's kind of like if I took a blind man on a trip and we went up to Yosemite. And you know, have you ever been in Yosemite where you pass through that long tunnel and you come out on the other side of the tunnel and you see all these cars that are parked on the side of the road because they're looking over into that valley and they're looking at those sheer rock cliffs coming down and those giant waterfalls and they're going whoa this is amazing and everyone's got their camera out taking pictures and so you say whoa this is amazing isn't it what does he say what's amazing i don't see anything that just look what are you talking about i don't see a thing 
or you take a deaf man to a concert. And you're going, wasn't that an incredible concert? I didn't hear anything. What are you talking about? Those guys were amazing. Well, I, I saw the symphony. I saw people going like this and going like this, but I didn't hear a thing. People are spiritually blind and spiritually deaf, and so they cannot behold the Son, they cannot hear the Father, and so faith is an impossibility to them. Sometimes Debbie and I will take walks, and whenever we walk by a house that has a bunch of flowers, she'll want to stop. And so, okay, I'll stop with her, and she'll say, Oh, these are so beautiful. I can't believe it. And she'll put her hand in it, and she'll smell one of them, and she says, Aren't they beautiful? And I said, well, I guess so. Yeah, they look, they look kind of pretty. <laughs> but do you see the problem here? I don't see the glory in the flowers the way she does. We went to that Bouchard's Garden one day up in Canada, and we spent an entire day walking around looking at flowers. And Debbie was in heaven. She saw the glory in those flowers, and frankly, I just don't see them. But then on the other hand, I can hear the glory in a banjo, and Debbie can't hear that glory either. <laughs> We all have those things that we're tuned into. The lost person is just not tuned into Jesus Christ. He doesn't hear the Father. He doesn't behold the glory of the Son. So right about now you're probably thinking, Brian, this sounds like a terrible contradiction. You're being completely inconsistent. Number one, you say, faith in Jesus Christ is the duty of every man. But then you say, faith in Jesus Christ is impossible for the natural man. Are you trying to tell me that God requires men to do something they can't do? Do you see the tension there? And that's a real tension. And that's exactly what I'm saying. God requires something people cannot do. Now, it might help a little bit for you to try to think about that inability of unregenerate people in this way. Jonathan Edwards and to my, to my knowledge, is the first one who actually uh, spelled this out. He says, there is such a thing as a natural inability, and there is such a thing as a moral inability. Now, let me try to illustrate this. A 10-day-old baby wets his diaper. He cannot hold it. He just wets all over the diaper. Is that a natural or a moral inability? That's natural. There's nothing he can do about it. But let's say your friend goes to a rip-roaring party and he gets so drunk that he cannot hold it and he wets his pants. Is that a natural or a moral inability? That's moral. Our problem is not a natural inability. God has given us everything we need to believe in Jesus Christ. We've got a mind, we've got a heart, we've got a conscience, and we have a will. What we don't have is the desire to glorify the Son of God by believing in Him and following Him. He's given us everything we need. The only thing that keeps us back from faith is not not having the, phys the physical apparatus that we need, this brain, this will, this conscience. What keeps us back is this wicked heart that doesn't want to believe. This, this brings up a good point, that sometimes when you come to things in the Bible, they will not make sense if you try to put them together. But they're both taught there. It is taught, as we've already seen in Scripture, that it is the duty of every man to believe. But it is also taught that it is impossible for the lost man to believe. So what do you do when you come to these two inconsistent, contradictory statements in Scripture? What do you do about it? 
Well, the one man says, if it's true that God requires all men to believe, that must mean that all men are able. And so they take that route. The other man says, if it's true that the lost man can't believe, that means that it's not his duty to believe. Okay? On the one side you have what's called an Arminian. On the other side you have what's called a hyper-Calvinist. Both take those two truths and they pit them against each other. But I want to encourage you this morning that what you want to do with those two truths is put them together. Whether or not you can understand them rationally or not, we have to hold in tension biblical truth. Uh, one of my favorite men from church history, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, made this quote. It's a great quote. He said, My love of consistency with my own doctrinal views is not great enough to allow me knowingly to alter a single text of Scripture. I have great respect for orthodoxy, but my reverence for inspiration is far greater. I would sooner a hundred times over appear to be inconsistent with myself than be inconsistent with the Word of God. I never thought it to be any very great crime to seem to be inconsistent with myself, for who am I that I should everlastingly be consistent? But I do think it a great crime to be so inconsistent with the Word of God that I should want to lop away a bough or even a twig from so much as a single tree of the forest of Scripture. God forbid that I should cut or shape, even in the least degree, any divine expression. So my encouragement to you is when you find truths in the Bible that don't seem to match up, just believe them both. Whether or not our puny little minds can put those things together is not the issue. They probably can't. Can you put together the issue that God is one and yet God is three at the same time? Or that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time? I can't, but I do believe them and I hold them together. It was a wise Greek professor who once said, I'd much rather be comfortable with my Bible and uncomfortable with my theology than to be comfortable with my theology and uncomfortable with my Bible. And if you need to be so consistent with your theology that you come to plain texts of Scripture that you have to squeeze and distort to, to cram them into that system, you better do something with your thinking. You better change your theology a little bit and just believe the Word of God. Okay, so faith is the duty of every man. Faith is impossible to the natural man. And thirdly, the, what I want to share with you this morning is that faith is the gift of God. Now that shouldn't come as any surprise because if faith is impossible to the natural man, that means that faith at one time was impossible for us, right? But does anybody here have faith in Jesus Christ? Can you say at one time I didn't, now I do? Well, if it was impossible for you, how'd you get it? <laughs> you got it from God. God gave it to you. Jesus said in John 6, 65, No man can come to me unless it has been granted him from my Father. In other words, no man can believe in me unless it is granted by God the Father. Or Acts 18, 27 speaks about those who believed through grace. Or Philippians 1.29, To you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Did you catch that? To you it has been granted to believe. Or 2 Peter 1.1, Peter starts off that letter by, he says, I'm writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. They, re they received it. They didn't conjure it up through willpower. It was given to them 
by God. Now, let's say, let's say Isaac comes over to our house one day and he just wants to be a helper to us. And I'm laid up in bed, I can't mow my lawn, and so Isaac comes over and he fires up that lawnmower and he starts mowing the lawn. And this is a 110 degree summer day, it's in July, and when Isaac's done, he comes into the house and he's just drenched with sweat and he's perspiring everywhere and he says, Mr. Anderson, can I please have some water? I said, well, sure. So I go over, get a pitcher, fill it up with water. I say, well, come on, get it. Hold out your hands, you know. Am I going to do that to Isaac? Am I going to pour the water in his hands? Because it's going to spill all over the place, right? You see, that water does Isaac no good unless it can be transported and brought to him in a way that he can access it. And so what I do is I take the pitcher and I pour it into a glass and I give him the glass of water and he drinks. Well, my friends, the glass is faith. Christ is the water that we all need. But it comes to us, it's transported to us, it, there's an instrument that, a means by which it comes and becomes ours, and that's the glass. And not only does God give Christ, but he gives the faith. Not only did I give the water, I gave the glass to you so that you could drink. And that's the beauty of God's sovereign grace, that even the faith that we need comes from his hands to us. So faith in Christ is the duty of every man. It's impossible to the natural man. It's the gift of God. Fourthly, faith in Christ is to receive and rest upon Christ alone. The Westminster Confession of Faith was hammered out in the 1600s, the mid-1600s, and they came up with a, a, a shorter catechism that could be given to parents, and they could ask a question of their children and help the children to learn by heart the answers so that those children could grow in their understanding of doctrine and theology. And one of the questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is faith? And the answer that they give is, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, which means it's a gift. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He has offered to us in the gospel. So let's break that down a little bit. Faith in Jesus Christ, number one, is whereby we receive him. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. So did you catch there the connection? Receiving in that verse is the same as believing on his name. So here's the difficulty when it comes to receiving Jesus. People want to receive him, but they like to divide Jesus up. Kind of like a pie. You cut that pie in three or four slices and you take the kind of slice you want. The one that has, well, if it was mom, it would be the, the, <laughs> the well-done piece of pie. <laughs> well, whatever it is, you know, we, we, we want to take that piece that we like. And people like the piece of Christ that speaks about him forgiving our sins and dying for our sins and giving us eternal life, and saving us from hell. And so we like to choose, well, I'll just take the piece of pie that Jesus is my Savior, but I'm going to leave those other pieces because I don't like those other ones. But you see, if you receive Jesus, what are you receiving? A person, a whole person, for all that that person is, in all of his offices. Christ is not just Savior. He's prophet, priest, 
and king. He's prophet to teach us God's truth. He's priest to save us from our sins, but he is king to rule us and govern over us. And through faith in Jesus Christ, receives Jesus for all who Jesus is. Lord, Savior, King, treasure for all that he is for God's people. So, faith in Jesus Christ receives him. It receives him. But not only that, but faith in Jesus Christ rests upon him alone. The old theologians said that there's three qualities to saving faith. Knowledge, assent, and trust. First of all, knowledge. If you're going to believe in Jesus, you have to know who he is, right? You have to know that he is God. That he's self-existent. That he existed before he came to the earth. You have to know that he was born and became a man, the incarnation. You have to know something about his sinless life, his righteous life, and then his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection, his ascension to heaven. So all that, you've got to know that. But that's not enough to have saving faith. You also need to assent to all of those things. Now, to assent to something means to agree with it. Agree that those things are true. Those doctrines that we find in Scripture are true. So, I know them, and I agree they're true. Do I have saving faith yet? I lack one thing. I need to trust in those doctrines and those truths and that person that I have come to know about and agree with. Recently, I came across some YouTube videos of a guy named Nick Walenda. Anybody know who that man is? You do. Okay, this guy is, he's crazy. <laughs> he's a tightrope walker. And they, they put a tightrope across the Grand Canyon, and without any kind of a safety net or any kind of a safety harness, just with his pole, he walked across the Grand Canyon. And they show this. You should, after the service, you should, you should go on YouTube and just watch it. My, my heart flew up into my throat, and I'm thinking, what in the world are you doing that for? You're crazy, man. And he's, he's a Christian. He's praising God as he's walking across this tightrope, saying, Lord, help me to be relaxed and at peace. Lord, you're so good. And he's walking across the Grand Canyon. And there's another one where he walks from one skyscraper to another skyscraper in Chicago at night, pitch black, and he's walking uphill. The rope isn't straight. It goes uphill, and this guy's walking up that tightrope. Now, if this Nick Walenda was willing to get out on that tightrope, don't you think he probably believed in the integrity of that rope, that it wasn't frayed or cut or was going to snap on him when he's halfway across? What he's doing there is he's venturing out on the integrity of that rope to hold him. And that's what faith is. You've got to commit to Christ. Not just know about him. Not just agree that the Bible's true about him. You've got to commit your soul to him so that he actually saves you or you're lost. Let's say we're in an airplane 30,000 feet up in the sky and all of a sudden we hear these explosions, two of them at once, and we start going into a nosedive. And the pilot comes on and he says, I'm sorry to have to tell everyone this, but both of our engines are down. We're in a tailspin. In a few minutes, we're going to crash. Your only hope is to strap on a parachute that our stewardess is going to bring to you and jump. So the stewardess starts handing out parachutes. And they give one to you, and you say, boy, that's a, a nice-looking parachute. Boy, it's so pretty. And so you put it on, 
Boy, it's, it fits really nice. You know, I bet this parachute would work if I jumped out of that plane. See, I've got knowledge and I've got assent. The thing I lack is trust. I'm not trusting that parachute until I jump, pull the cord, and just hope that that thing gets me safely to the ground. See, that's what you have to do with Jesus. You need to strap him on like a parachute and jump. You need to stop trusting in everything else in your life. Your good works especially. Your church attendance. Whatever it is that you have your trust in, stop trusting in it and put your trust in Jesus. That's when you go from nominal faith to saving faith. So faith is receiving and resting upon Christ alone for salvation. Number five. Not only is faith the duty of every man, not only is faith impossible for the natural man, the gift of God, not only is it receiving and resting upon Christ alone, but Christ, faith in Christ is the link between your soul and God's rescuing love. Think about John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God has given His rescuing love to this world in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. But it'll do you no good unless you're linked to that love. And the only way that humans, sinful humans, can link up with that love is through faith, faith in Him. I read a story recently about, this is like a hundred years ago, but two women were on the side of the Niagara River and they fell in and the current is so fast in the Niagara River that they were swept away and try as they might, they couldn't get back to shore and they're being swept down towards the falls where 200 feet down and if you go over those falls, you're going to die. You're going to drown. And so people on the shore saw these two women struggling away and someone had a rope and they threw a rope out to them. One of the women grabbed the rope but the other one saw this big old log floating right next to her and so she didn't grab the rope she grabbed onto the log well the woman that grabbed the rope was pulled safely in but the woman that grabbed the log went over the falls and died you see the rope connected that woman to the shore and faith is the only thing that's going to connect you with the shore of heaven the shore of Christ your good works are like grabbing on logs your bible reading it's like grabbing on a log Faith in Christ is the only thing that will get you safely to the heavenly shore. And then number six, faith in Christ overcomes every obstacle and enables the person who has it to persevere all the way to the end. You see, genuine saving faith is not flighty and fickle. It doesn't come and go. Once you have it, you have it for good. It is permanent. Remember Jesus' little story about the four kinds of soils? He said the stony ground here was someone who believed for a while and then in the moment of temptation they fell away. They didn't possess the real thing. They didn't have genuine saving faith. Because if you possess genuine faith, you're going to have it now, you're going to have it 10 years from now, you're going to have it on your dying deathbed and you're not going to lose it along the way. I talk to people all the time and they say, well, when I was seven years old I came to Christ. I prayed the sinner's prayer with my mom and dad. But when I became a teenager, I totally left the Lord. I lived a life of sin for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And now I'm just coming back to Jesus. As though you can, 
Folks, you can't do that. You can't backslide for 20 or 30, 40 years and be saved. That person never had genuine saving faith as a seven-year-old. They thought they did. Now, I grant you, many people think they have the real thing, but they don't. If you can go on and practice sin for year after year after year like that, you're not a Christian. 1 John 3.9 says, No one who is born of God practices sin, because God's seed, that's the Holy Spirit, abides in him, and he cannot go on living in sin because he's born of God. So if you can be comfortable just living in sin, my friend, you need to repent and get right with God through faith in His Son today. Genuine faith lasts. It lasts. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or Hebrews 12.2, Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. He not only starts it, he not only gives it in the beginning, but he keeps it going and fuels it and makes sure it makes it all the way to the very end. There's a story in Pilgrim's Progress that I love where uh, a man is looking at this fire in a chimney, in a fireplace there, and, and he's just kind of marveling at that fire, and then he walks around behind the fire, and he sees the devil throwing water on it, trying to put out the fire. But at the same time, he sees Jesus pouring gasoline on it to make that fire when it's about to go out and Jesus always fans it into flame again. And see, that is what happens. The Lord not only begins the faith, but he throws gas on it. He keeps it going. True faith in Jesus Christ will endure anything that comes into your life. And I don't care what it is. What trial, what sorrow, what grief, what temptation... If he's given you that faith, he will sustain it to the very end. Last summer, Debbie and I went with some friends to Sequoia National Park. And they've got these giant trees there. There's one called Mount Sherman. This tree is 270 feet, 275 feet tall. It's 100 feet around the base of the tree. So that's what, 16 men lying down <laughs> just to go around the base of this tree. It's 2,100 years old. So this tree existed before Jesus was on the earth. And it weighs, catch, catch us, it weighs 4.1 million pounds. It is the largest living organism on the face of the earth. Now, when you look at the tree like that, you think, well, how did it survive all those droughts it had to go through in 2,000 years? And all those high winds. And you can even take a look at the tree. There, there are trees up there that have been scarred by fires. Like, you look at the base, the trunk of it, and half of it's been eaten away by fires, and it's still alive. It hasn't fallen down. It's like these trees are invincible. <laughs> no matter what happens, throw anything at it you want, it still stands. And that's what the true faith in Jesus Christ is like. It's invincible. Not because we're invincible, but because Christ has given us a supernatural faith in Him. The canons of the Synod of Dort... Is that familiar to anybody here? Have you ever heard of that phrase? <laughs> okay. This is a group of theologians that met in 1618, 1619 in the Netherlands. Long time ago. What is that? Almost 400 years. But I love this document. I think the way they phrased the perseverance of the saints is so beautiful. It's almost like you're going to read it for your devotions or something. But I want to read you a phrase out of the canons of the Synod of York. Thus... It is not in consequence of their own merits or strength, 
but of God's free mercy that they neither totally fall from faith and grace nor continue and perish finally in their backslidings, which with respect to themselves is not only possible, but would undoubtedly happen. But with respect to God, it is utterly impossible. Since his counsel, now notice the reasons here. His counsel cannot be changed, nor his purpose fail. Neither can the call according to his purpose be revoked, nor the merit, intercession, and preservation of Christ be rendered ineffectual, nor the sealing of the Holy Spirit be frustrated or obliterated. Do you see the reason why your faith is going to stand? It's not because you're something special. It's because He is. And He's going to make sure you will endure until the end. Finally, number seven. Faith in Jesus Christ brings us soul satisfaction. It brings soul satisfaction. John 6.35 Jesus says there that the one who believes in Him will not hunger and He will never thirst. You believe? You're not going to hunger. You believe? You don't thirst. Over in John chapter 4 verse 13 Jesus said, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Do you see that? Faith is what satisfies the soul of the Christian. Read John chapter 6 sometime. Jesus says over and over and over again, I'm the bread of life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has everlasting life. Now, how do you eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus? You know, we're not cannibals here. What does that mean? That means to exercise faith on him, especially on his sufferings and on his death for your behalf. So, if you want soul satisfaction, let's say you have a gnawing in your heart for something, and you need that feel. Like you're hungry. You ever been really hungry? You need food to satisfy, don't you? Faith is the hand that brings the food to your mouth so that you can be satisfied. If a little boy came over to our house and he said, Mr. Anderson, I'm so hungry, can I have an apple? I said, well, sure, I'll give you an apple. I go to the refrigerator, I take it out, I hold it out to him. Here it is. What's he got to do? He's got to come, he's got to reach out his hand, and he's got to take it and put it to his mouth. Your hand is faith. Faith is the hand that reaches out for the food of Christ and the drink of Christ and brings it to your soul. We have a dear, precious friend who lost her sense of taste. She can't taste anything. She's lost all kinds of weight because she doesn't feel like eating anymore. Nothing tastes good. You know, the lost person has no spiritual taste buds. They don't enjoy Christ. They can't you know, taste and see that the Lord is good, they've never been able to do that because they're cut off from Him. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They've never tasted of the sweetness of Jesus. But if they had faith, faith would bring that nourishment of Christ to their soul and they'd be able to eat. Now, you are going to go through times as Christians where you're going to feel this gnawing in your soul. What you need to do is exercise faith upon Christ. You need to take Him by the hand of faith and bring Him to the mouth and enjoy the sweetness of Christ. Open up the Word of God and drink it in. Turn that into prayer to Him. 
Make, just funnel, funnel that whole thing. God, through the word, back to God. So faith is the duty of every man. It's impossible to the natural man. It's the gift of God. It's receiving and resting upon Christ alone. It links you with God's rescuing love. It endures every difficulty and it brings you into the possession of soul satisfaction. Now I just want to make two statements as we conclude today. There is an aspect of saving faith that is exclusive. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Only those who believe will have eternal life. Only them. Not everybody's going to have eternal life. I know that's, that's uh, not politically correct to say any longer. People want to challenge that constantly. Are you telling me that that devout Muslim or Hindu that prays constantly to their God is not going to heaven? Look how sincere they are. Don't you know that all roads lead to God? No, they don't. According to the word of God, those who believe in Jesus shall not perish. It's exclusive. Only those who believe. But it goes to the flip side as well. It's also inclusive in another sense. Anyone who believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. Anyone. You know, the Greek doesn't really say whoever there. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that everyone believing in Him, that's the literal rendering, everyone believing in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Everyone. It doesn't matter if you're man, woman, boy, girl, adult, child. It doesn't matter what race or nationality you're from. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what the size of your intelligence is. It doesn't matter how many sins you've already committed or what black life you've already committed, whether you've come out of prostitution or you're a convicted criminal. It doesn't matter any of those things. Whoever believes, whoever believes, do you believe? The offer is extended. God's holding out His hands. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish. If you go to hell, my friend, it won't be because the offer's not real. He's holding it out. Believe. Believe. You see, Brian, you already told me I couldn't. Ask God to enable you. Cry out to God. I believe, help my unbelief, Lord. Come to Him. Come to Christ. If there's anybody here who does not possess the kind of faith I'm talking about, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, believe in Him today, and your soul will be saved this instant, this moment, immediately. But if you walk out of here the same way you walked in, you'll walk out lost. God, I pray, for those who don't have this kind of faith, God, would you give it to them? Turn their hearts, Lord. Change the heart. Give them the ability to behold the Son and hear the Father's voice. Lord, may they be born from above today that faith would just come from them naturally. And Lord, I pray for those who have it, that they would remember to exercise it so that gnawing in their soul would be filled day after day after day as they go to your word, 
because we know it's your word that produces faith. So Lord, help us as your children to continually come to your word and exercise faith on the promises that we find there that we would have that inner gnawing, that inner hunger satisfied. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.